Well, we bring the lights back up for just a short time so that we can uh, do a little bit of Bible study. Uh, didn't notice already the name of the church is Oak Hill Bible Church, and uh, for us that name has a very important meaning. It means we put our time and, and focus on study of God's Word whenever we meet, at least as a part of what we do, and tonight's no different. Tonight we celebrate the birth of Christ, and so it's only appropriate that the message have a theme of the birth of Christ, but as you're going to find out, we don't have to depart from our normal study that we're already engaged in in order to do that. So if you'll pray with me just briefly while we open up your Bibles, if you have one, please uh, open it with me. You may have one in front of you. I'm not sure if there's uh, any in the pews, but, uh, but hopefully there's one nearby. While I'm doing that, or while you're doing that, let's pray. Let's go to the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for a beautiful evening, one that's warm and inviting, Father, perhaps uncharacteristically so in the in terms of the weather, but, but Father, the day we come and spend time at your feet studying your word is always appropriate, always welcoming. And Lord, we thank you this evening that you can be with friends and family, celebrating a night that as children we long for all year long. And as adults, Father, we have come to enjoy in new and perhaps better ways. But for the whole world, Father, it's a day like none other, a day in which our promised Savior was delivered so many years ago. And yet, Father, the truth of that day, the meaning of that day, the power of that day continues to ring through the years of history even till now as new believers come into the faith every day, knowing that this child came in such a humble way, was the Lord, Creator, God of the universe who came in the form of man to do something that could be done no other way, to save men and women from their sins. Thank you, Father, for the gift of Christ for the gift of a day once a year when we can remember that, and for all the joy this day brings for so many. May our time in the Word this evening, Father, remind us of its true purpose in our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we'll be in Judges chapter 13, but before we do that, let me give you a moment of background on how that chapter of Scripture has anything at all to do with why we're here tonight to celebrate Christmas. We do celebrate the birth tonight of Jesus Christ. That's the moment when, as I said in my prayer, the creator of the universe condescended to come to earth in the form of man. The Son of God becoming the Son of Man, Scripture says. A baby in a manger, a child born to bring peace and joy to humanity by making possible a reconciliation of sinful men and women with a holy and just God. That's what we're here to celebrate. But as important as this moment is for the world, we also need to remember it was very important for two particular adults back 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, some 2,000 years ago, they became parents for the very first time. New parents are always faced with the same questions, the same uncertainties. How how do we raise this child? Uh, What do we feed him? Uh, Dads, how do I change him? Uh, What if he gets sick? What if we leave him behind in the temple and forget he's there for three days? Well, we don't all have that one, but they did. But still, the point is, every parent wonders about their children, particularly when it's their first son or daughter. And and I think one of the things we tend to go to right away is, what are they going to do when they grow up? I wonder what this child is going to become. We all have great dreams for our kids. And I think we all are hoping that at the very least, they don't turn out like that son who invented the talking clock. You haven't heard this one? The story of the talking clock guy? He's a young guy. He left home. He went to college. He went off on his own, as kids do, and they got an apartment near the campus. And uh, one day he had some friends from his college class come and visit him and see his new apartment. And in the corner of his apartment, he had this gigantic brass gong, you know, the kind that you've seen that make the big noise. Anyway, the friends were looking at that thinking, oh, that's kind of a cool thing to have in your apartment, but why do you have a 
giant gong. And he said, that's not a gong. That's a talking clock. And they said, no way. He said, absolutely. He said, you want to see how it works? They go, well, of course. He walks over. He picks up a hammer. He gets a big swing going and knocks the you-know-what out of that gong. And the thing just clangs so loudly. Everyone was holding their ears to keep from, from having their ears hurt. The thing just rings and rings and rings. Finally, you know, it dies off. And they're waiting for the next thing to happen. Next thing you know, from behind the wall, they hear this voice. You idiot, it's 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> Talking clock. <laughs> yeah, so most of us are hoping our kids do better than that. But Joseph and Mary did not have to wonder what was going to come of their child because they had been told by an angel, even before he was born, what to expect in the case of their special son. They heard from the angel that their child was going to be a boy, that he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, which Mary, of course, knew was the only way it was going to happen. Uh, She knew he would be the promised Messiah, the one to deliver Israel out of bondage. She was even given the name of the child. She didn't have to think up a name. His name would be Jesus. But even though this son, Jesus, was about to be born as a man to Mary, the scriptures tell us he existed long before this moment, all the way back to eternity. In fact, Jesus himself said to the Pharisees at one point, Before Abraham, I am. So Jesus lived from eternity in the sense that he never had a beginning. He never will have an end, according to Scripture. He is God. And you can see this at work in the Old Testament, in the parts of the Bible that were written prior to Jesus' birth to Mary and Joseph. And whenever you see the Old Testament speak of Jesus' work, of his presence in the lives of individuals, the Bible refers to him in that pre-incarnate way, or that pre-incarnate form, as the angel of the Lord. Anytime you see the phrase, the angel of the Lord, in the Old Testament, you're looking at Jesus before he took on flesh. And Mary and Joseph knew that their son was to be this promised Messiah, but we can go back even further in the Old Testament and find another couple, as it turns out, who was told also in advance that their son would be a very special man in God's purposes and that their son would, in a similar way, free Israel from oppression, in this case by the Philistines, and that he would live under a very special vow called a Nazarite vow. He'd be separated from all those around him in a very unique way, set apart for service to God. And as we'll learn later in our study of Judges, God is going to endow this man with supernatural power to accomplish the mission that God gives him. Many of you know who I'm talking about because you've been here in the study we've been doing already. But his name is Samson. And Samson, in many ways, pictures the arrival of Jesus Christ as God intended that he would. So how appropriate is it that Jesus appeared to these parents, the angel of the Lord, that is, appeared to these parents and told them of the arrival of their coming son, when in a similar way, Jesus' own arrival would be foretold in a very similar pattern. We studied this last Sunday, and I'm going to continue a little bit for our sake tonight, just a little bit, and show you the parallels between the arrival of Samson to his parents and the arrival of Jesus to Joseph and Mary. And in doing so, I hope you'll understand a little bit more what God was doing in both cases. Now, last week when we studied this, we saw that the woman, the mother, having heard from the angel of the Lord that she was going to give birth to Samson, ran back to her husband. Now, this is a woman who had had no children to this point. She was barren as far as they could tell. So it was a great shock to her they were finally going to have a son. And when she came to her husband, a man whose name is Manoah, Manoah had all the questions that any husband would have if his barren wife showed up and said, I'm pregnant. In this case, though, he wanted to talk to the prophet, as they called him, the man who had appeared to her and given her this news. And so the two of them pray to the Lord 
asking that God would return the prophet to them because they did not know it was the angel of the Lord. And that man could answer some more questions. So that's where we pick up. It's in Judges chapter 13, verse 8. I'm going to read a little section. Verse 8 through verse 23. And if your Bible's in front of you, you can read along with me. Verse 8 starts. Then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent come to us again that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God, that's the angel of the Lord again, came again to the woman as she was seated in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now, when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode of life and his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Let the woman pay attention to all that I have said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you so that we may prepare a young goat for you. The angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Well, though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us these things, nor would he have let us hear these things at a time like this. Looking at all that I just read, let's take note of some of the highlights, for there's so much we could say, particularly about Manoah. The husband starts by praying with his wife to God to see this, quote, prophet again, the one they had seen earlier. And they do what every godly parent should do, I would argue. They seek the Lord for guidance in raising their children. They're just asking the Lord for guidance. And in their case, they had all the more reason to ask because they had already heard this child was going to be a very special son. And they knew the Lord was preparing him for something. And they knew the Lord answers prayers. And so they prayed and the Lord did, in fact, answer their prayer. He brings the angel of the Lord back, Jesus, as we said, pre-incarnate, meeting the woman first in the field, leading her to call her husband, and then the two inquire of him. They come back and they begin to inquire. And the Lord confirms to the husband, yes, I'm the one who was here earlier. But as we saw in the text, none of this has revealed to them yet that they're speaking to the angel of the Lord. And when we hear that term, remember, to them like to us now, it means literally God. It means God himself appearing. You saw that late in the passage, remember? They said, if we've seen God, we should surely die, right? That was the conclusion they drew. So they knew who the angel of the Lord is. They just didn't know that this was that guy. Not yet. And then the father begins to interrogate this guy. The prophet, as he thinks he is. He wants more information. Tell me more about what's going to happen to the son you're giving me. Specifically, he wants to know the son's future occupation and, and what his calling will be. And this is understandable. We all would like to know this, wouldn't we? Would any of us turn down the opportunity, if God permitted, to know exactly what the future held for our children before the future took place? Wouldn't we want to know that? Well, the problem is, that's a wrong thing to know. 
It's a very bad thing to know. It's not a healthy request for any of us. When you're asking the Lord for more details about the future than you should rightfully have, what you're doing without realizing it is you're putting yourself in the position of evaluating what God reveals. And then as you hear what the future holds, you're in a position to decide if you like it or not. And if you don't like it, well, then you'll start to think you need to do something to change it. In other words, you put yourself in the position of God to an extent, saying to yourself, I will decide for myself whether what God has planned for me is the right thing or not. God sidesteps that whole problem by not telling you what's going to happen so that when it happens, you'll deal with it as he planned. So knowing too much about what God has planned, I think, is counterproductive to our obedience to the plan. So the Lord tells us only what we need to know. Notice his response to the husband. The angel of the Lord says, essentially, I've already told your wife everything you need to know. If you would just do what I told her, if she just does what I told her, everything will work out just fine. So basically, you have enough information. Later in Samson's own life, as the story plays out, you watch this man move beyond the Lord's instructions and begin to fall into sin as a result of living according to his own desires rather than to the Lord's. He will remain a Nazarite his whole life. He never breaks his vow voluntarily, but... He doesn't follow through with the instructions the angel of the Lord gave his parents, which is to say, rest in what you know and obey it. That wasn't enough for Samson, unfortunately. Meanwhile, back to this story. The father wants to at least know if he can honor this angel, or as he thinks, this prophet, while he has his company. And so what follows is a scene very similar to something we studied earlier in Gideon's experience, one in which the angel of the Lord also appeared to Gideon. Both cases, in both cases, they want to honor this visitor by conducting a meal, which was a standard procedure in this part of the world in this time, in this age. The highest thing you could do for a visitor was to have a lavish meal for them on their behalf or, or for their honor. And both Gideon and now Manoah offer that to the angel of the Lord. Notice, though, that the Lord says, I'm not here to eat with you. Why do you think it is that the angel of the Lord can't consume the food? Well, of course, it's because the angel of the Lord is not incarnate yet. This is not something in which God has prepared a body for Christ, so God, Christ is not prepared to eat a meal with this man. But what he does say is this, if you want to honor the Lord through the sacrifice of this animal, I will participate as an observer at the sacrifice. And then he asks one more question. And Noah asks one more question. He says, what's your name? That's a logical thing, too. We would say the same thing, I'm sure. We want to know who we're talking to. The Lord answers the question, though, in a very interesting way. He answers it with a question. The paraphrase, it in our English Bible really makes this a bit hard to understand because the original Hebrew is a little, a little hard to translate literally. But to paraphrase, what's coming out in English should be something like, what is this question you ask, what is your name? Jesus is saying, what is this question, what is your name? Why would you ask me this question, what is your name? He isn't saying this because he thinks they should have already known his name. Self-evidently, these people aren't going to know who they're talking to until such time as God chooses to reveal it to them. That's not the point of the question. Rather, he's emphasizing that humanity cannot know the name of God until it's revealed. What is this question you ask me? What is my name? It is wonderful, meaning it is not yours yet. The Messiah had yet to be revealed to men. Men don't know anything about God apart from what God chooses to reveal. That's always been true. Men and women, before they know the true living God, some care nothing of religious matters, and then there are others who are very zealous, but in all cases, they know nothing of the true living God until such time as God condescends to reveal himself to us. For it is not within the capacity of humanity to know a creator who remains outside their reach. 
That's always been true. That's what makes Christmas so powerful and special. It is the God of all creation choosing to reveal Himself in the most humble of ways, in the most relatable way that we could ever know, through the child born to Mary and Joseph. But now once the Lord reveals Himself to us, well then everything's different. I mean, at the point where God Himself says, Here I am, know me. Well then, it falls to us to recognize what God has done and accept it. The man and the woman had heard now from the angel of the Lord. They had the instructions of God. They were simple and easy to understand. And so the Lord says, that's all you need. But then he says one more thing in response to the question of the name. He says, it is wonderful. Do you know what he's referring to? It's in your bulletin for the night. It refers to Isaiah 9, verse 6, in which Isaiah writes, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Obviously, in Isaiah, the Lord speaking through Isaiah is referencing the coming of the Messiah. And now you see Jesus pre-incarnate telling Manoah, I am that one that's promised, I am the wonderful counselor, in other words. What's really interesting, though, is the comment by the angel of the Lord in Judges 13 is coming centuries before Isaiah was ever born. So think of this. Here you have the Lord speaking prophetically about something that a future prophet will speak prophetically about a future day when the Lord himself will arrive as a man. If, if that doesn't show you the wisdom of what God does in the word of God, then nothing else will. For if you dismiss that as coincidence, then there's nothing better I can hope to offer you. God spoke through this moment, centuries before another man spoke, centuries before Christ arrived, about a child coming who would ultimately rule the world about a child who would be called a wonderful counselor, and yet at the same time, he will be a mighty God, not merely a man, not merely a prophet. He is both the eternal father and the prince of peace. Don't miss the way those details work together, friends. Jesus is both a human child, but he is also the eternal God. One with the Father, he says in John's Gospel. Today, he is a wonderful counselor in our hearts by way of the Holy Spirit who indwells all who know him in faith. And one day, as he's promised, he will return to rule the world in person. Jesus said these things about himself in advance so that we would know and trust his word is true. Now, the story of 13 ends in a way that's almost identical to Gideon's encounter. You see it as I already read it. The Lord proving his identity to Manoah and his wife by ascending, it says, to heaven in the flames of the fire of this sacrifice. And, of course, as they see this happen, it's no mystery to them who they've been in the presence of. They see it immediately. This was the angel of the Lord. Oh, my gosh, did you see that? This guy was just sitting here. We were eating together. Next thing you know, he's gone. Why didn't you tell me this who he was? How did I know? You were with him. I didn't know this. I mean, you can see it all playing out, right? Does this only happen in my house? So they recognized who they were talking to. But then the wife says something very interesting. The husband says, we're going to die. We're going to die. The wife says, all right, honey, think about it for a minute. She says, if God wanted to kill us by his appearing, wouldn't that have already happened? Right? Would we not be dead by now? The fact that we're living right now proves that the angel of the Lord came to bring life, not death. His appearing was to bring news of new birth, not to bring the end to us. And that life will come in the form of the special child of Samson. Let's wrap up by looking at a couple of parallels between even just the little we've looked at tonight in Samson's life and what I know we're already familiar with 
in the birth of Jesus. Because these parallels help demonstrate to us that the coming of Christ as the child that we know from the Bible stories and the carols and all the rest, Jesus born in Bethlehem of Mary and Joseph, that arrival was perfectly planned according to a God who set it all out in advance, said it was coming, showed it to us, so that when it did happen, none of us could stand and say, in honesty, that it's a meaningless fable. For there's no way luck, chance, or anything else could have arrived at a perfectly orchestrated story written centuries before it happened, and then all of it play out exactly as foretold. There's only one answer to why that's true. It's God. So we'll study these parallels in coming weeks if you come back with us and study in the book of Judges because Samson's life is nothing if not a picture of Christ from front to back in many ways. But we can already see some remarkable connections. First, the name Samson. We haven't looked at this yet in our study. You know what the name Samson means? Son of light. Samson, the son of light, coming to a man, Manoah. Do you know what Manoah's name means? Peace and rest. A father of peace and rest will bring a son who is the son of light. They come from the tribe of Dan. The word Dan means judge. And from the town of Zorah, which means painful sting. Samson will be set apart from the womb, as pictured by his Nazarite vow. Even his mother will follow a Nazarite vow for a time in order to fully set him apart. Then we have Samson entering the world, principally, we're told, to begin the defeat of the Philistines. We studied that last week. You know what the word Philistine has been said to mean? Some have concluded it means one who crawls in the dirt. One who crawls in the dirt. Well, that reminds us of something, doesn't it? Satan, right? The serpent of old in chapter 3 of Genesis. The one who was condemned to crawl in the dirt. Why? Because he brought sin to mankind, necessitating a savior in the first place. So the sin of the garden brought all mankind under a curse of death. So that if men and women are ever to rise above that curse and enter into the presence of God without judgment for sin, God must do something to remove that curse from us to remove the penalty that sin deserves so in mercy the father promises us that he will one day bring a savior who will conquer the enemy and take our curse for us bringing peace and rest to the world that son will be conceived supernaturally he will arrive in an unexpected way he will be the light of the world jesus calling himself the light of the world in the gospels he will be set apart by the spirit He will conquer the enemy by taking our curse, enduring the sting of sin, which is death. Nevertheless, he will be resurrected, and one day he returns to judge the world in righteousness, ruling the world in power and in might. Now, friends, consider some of the parallels again. A son of light, born to conquer the curse made necessary by the sting of sin, that is death, doing it for a father who is peace and rest in a tribe that will judge and one day rule. All of these parallels between Samson and Jesus are not coincidence. I didn't make them up. This isn't a game. The Lord picked places. He picked people. He gave them names. They were born on certain days to certain parents in certain places of the earth. And all of these people were living a life just like you and I, oblivious to God's hand for the most part. You know, God doesn't have to show you what he's doing in order to do it. And as all of this plays out and it's finally written down for us, we can sit here thousands of years later and read the text of Scripture unchanged over those thousands of years as ancient manuscripts demonstrate. And we can make a decision. We can ignore it, dismiss it, call it fable and put it aside. But we're only ignoring the obvious. We're only denying a truth that's undeniable. Or we can... Look at it as it was intended to be seen and say to ourselves, there's only one rational explanation for how things like this get done. 
Because the God of the universe has the power to communicate in any way he wants, to set up circumstances however he chooses, to orchestrate events big and small so that nothing is left out. And then as it all plays out in front of us, the obvious thing we conclude is God is telling us a story. Now what am I to do with that story? He's showing us in words and in pictures the story of Jesus centuries and millennia before Jesus ever came into the world. Certainly before we did. Don't let the myths of Christmas, like Santa and and all the other stuff this time of year, don't let that distract you from the powerful, life-changing truth of the real message of Christmas. Jesus, God himself, taking the form of man, because it was the only way God could solve the problem of sin in our lives. Someone had to pay the price for your sin and my sin. Someone had to be qualified to do that. And only God himself was sinless, Therefore, not under a curse of his own, not destined to death for his own sin. And then that sinless individual could put himself on a cross and take the penalty that you and I deserve. That's the only way. And that's why Jesus said, no one comes to the Father but through me. He lived a sinless life so that you and I could enjoy the fruits of that righteousness, though we deserve wrath. Have you accepted this gift of salvation? Can you see on the pages of your Bible tonight how the Lord foretold that the wonderful Counselor, the Prince of Peace, would come one day for you and I? Do you recognize it? This Christmas, may I ask all of us that we would accept the greatest gift the world has ever known or will ever know, and that is to accept Christ as your Savior, believing in your heart that He is the one the Lord has sent to you to save you from your sins, and to confess that. You don't have to do it now. Not in front of me or this group necessarily. But we like to say there's no such thing as an unbeliever. There's only not yet believers. The key is, do you believe now before the penalty of sin is applied? Or do you wait to believe only when it's self-evident because you're standing before the Creator on your judgment day? Let's agree that it's better to believe now. Let's pray together as we finish the message and return to the rest of our service. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the wisdom of your word, for the power of that it holds, for the truth that it contains, for the life-changing ability that it offers. Father, I pray that those who have heard the word tonight, those who know you and those who may not, would all be moved to consider the meaning of Christmas in a better way and to apply what they've learned, Father, in their own hearts, whether to be more obedient, more committed in service, more bold in proclaiming the truth, Or for those who have never heard it before, Father, moved by your Holy Spirit to confess what they now have heard to be true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.